What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. My name is Ricky Smith, and I'm the founder of Random Acts of Kindness Everywhere. A nonprofit that simply does exactly what it says. Promote kindness everywhere. We know the world is crazy right now. If you are searching for a podcast that has a deeper conversation about race, my co-host Angel Gray and I will be discussing everything going on right now on our podcast, Random Acts of Podcast on Blue Wire Podcast Network. To find out more, go to rakenow.org. Enjoy the show. Russell Westbrook is off to Houston. It's going to be scary. Not for us. No! James Harden just caught a body here in Los Angeles. And Westbrook is on the freeway. What's up, guys? Welcome to the podcast. My name is Solomon Ali at Solomon Ali NBA on Twitter. Here's joined by Forrest Walker at Do Nots on Twitter. How you doing, man? Uh, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. It's been a little while, huh? It has been a little while. Um, lots happened in the real world. And, you know, for the longest time, I've been kind of hesitant to talk about politics or issues that matter to me in general, not just on this podcast, on Twitter, anywhere where I've had a platform. I've just kind of avoided the subject. And, you know, that's been for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, I don't want to divide people. I know a lot of people use sports as kind of an escapism, and I understand that. But, it comes to a point where like you have to say something when these issues are so important. And I feel like this upcoming election is super important. And the issues that are going around, going on in this world, like are just too important to not to ignore. It's not like I don't care about these issues. Like you and I talk about them extensively off the air all the time. Um, and I, I just haven't really had, I just haven't really known how to attack the issue. And I didn't really want to divide people. And I've been scared I'll mean, be completely honest. I've been, I've been scared to lose a following, and uh, I, I I recognize now that that's wrong. Uh, you you should not be scared. You should speak up when issues are important. And I I, I couldn't figure out any other person that I'd rather discuss this with than you. Um, how have you thought about the past week or two events? All right. Uh... Yeah, well, first off, I gotta say I'm I'm glad you thought of me. It's very it's a, it's a huge compliment uh, to me, and I, that really means a lot to me. Uh, yeah, this is the stuff that I think about and obviously talk about uh, <laughs> all the time because I I don't know that's just it's a, this stuff is important. You're absolutely right. It's super critical, and there's no ignoring it anymore. Uh, this has been huge. This is one of the most important events in our lifetimes, and like it may in fact this might be the most important like couple of weeks of our lives when we look back on it that it would not be implausible right this is this is extremely important and what we do right now really matters what we think what we do what we say like we're going to look back on this and we're this is going to part define not just who we are but where we go as a country i mean and you're right it is impossible to talk about this right now when you're at the point where like sports leagues are coming down on this issue i think that and like it is, major corporations yeah. too 
which is yeah. which is what to me it's really shocking. Like we've gotten to the tipping point where all these corporations that were afraid to talk about it and afraid to support the Black Lives Matter movement because they thought it was too divisive. Uh, like they're now coming out openly in front of it because it's now become such a uh, it's not polarizing anymore. Like the issue changed overnight for a lot of corporations. Like the like before it was deemed as polarizing to, to even discuss the the idea of police brutality and now it's become more widely acceptable to talk about. Like in 2016 when we were talking about these issues, we we're just talking 4 years ago. That's nothing. In 2016 when we were talking about these issues, we were in a more divided landscape and a lot of people didn't want to admit that police brutality against black and brown people were a thing. And now we've gotten to the point where there's just been so much, so many videos, so many um, points of reckoning. And I feel like the coronavirus, obviously, I mean, this is just a fact, what I'm about to say. This is not like politics. This is like a fact. Like the coronavirus has disproportionately affected the black community more than any other community. And police brutality for years and years and years has disproportionately affected black and brown people for years and years. And years. we have data on this. Uh, black people are jailed for petty crimes, such as marijuana possession, uh, disproportionately much more than any other race. And it's, it's gotten to the point where like, I feel like the George Floyd video, which is, we'll talk about that in a minute, that combined with where we are in this country with the coronavirus pandemic and how it's disproportionately affected minorities, uh, has created this kind of cluster f- to where um, we all are frustrated. We're all angry. We all want stuff to change. We all want not just criminal justice reform. That, that's that been something that we've talked about for years, but now it's become clear that we need significant police reform. And, you know, it's it's it, that's the, the point about corporations coming out and speaking out on it is to me like the, like, like you know you a lot of people might look at it and roll their eyes like how does how how you know how genuine is this well it doesn't really matter how genuine this is the the point is that it's happening and the point is that this movement is gaining a lot more supporters and that when stuff like that happens when when you're getting a, an issue polled at 65 to 70 percent agreeing with you you have to pounce on that issue and get something substantial passed. Yeah, I think it's very important that you said that it doesn't matter if it's genuine and because you, you're exactly right. Uh, what matters is that these companies think they need to stake out they, that terrain, right? They they believe now suddenly that it's in their best interest to be on this particular side of this issue. And they're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's it is way past time is the reality. Like you said, this has been happening for years we anyone who if you were not angry you were not paying attention as the saying goes black people have been brutalized murdered and suffered racial animus and prejudice and the full brunt of institutional racism for centuries in this country and this has always been an incredibly pressing issue it is no is never been more pressing right now because it has always been at the top of the list. We are just finally willing to admit it right now. And that's good. Being willing to admit this is an issue is incredibly important and going out there and marching with, with people who are trying to fight against this is critical right now. And I, it, it really, it is extremely touching to me. And more than that, it's, 
it is important. Like, it doesn't matter how I feel about it, honestly. What matters is how important this is that this gets done. And seeing people going out there and uh, helping to defend and elevate and protect and uh, work with the black communities and the various organizations who have been working for tirelessly and honestly thanklessly for years on this issue is intensely gratifying. And my hope is that we can keep up this momentum and get more done because what has to get done is saving of lives and betterment of lives and giving people and helping people to gain the dignity they have always deserved. 100%. Like this has been a long time coming. Um, and I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this issue because it, it, it's, it's really one of those things where it was very hard to watch. But what was your reaction to the George Floyd video? It's it's horrifying. Like it's it is the it is amazing that they found a way to do something even more repulsive than previous times. Like the Eric Gardner the, video to me was like, I, I don't know if it gets any worse than this. And then the George Floyd video, it's like, oh yeah, it absolutely can. Like it absolutely can. And and here's, here's the thing, like if you've ever befriended a black person, if you've ever been around black people, they've told you about this issue. They've, they've joked about it with you. Like it's, it's been, it's been front of mind for them. They, they talk about it all the time. Like if, if you're a black parent in this environment, you are consistently, you know, asked to tell your kids about this uh with the with the idea of when you get pulled over by a police officer you have to behave differently than a white person who gets pulled over by a police officer it's just totally different and the only thing that's changed is we have these camera phones these hd camera phones in our pocket uh this thing has been happening for a decade like like i have no doubt that something like george floyd happened before we just never had a camera phone recorded before and it's one of those things where like I, it, yes, we need police reform, but also we need education reform. Like the the stuff about the Tulsa riots, I had never heard that before until this week. And like the, that that Tulsa, uh, I, I don't even know what the name of the event is because I've never yeah. learned it in school. The before. Tulsa massacre of Black Wall Street. Yeah, it's yes. it it has been largely scrubbed from our history books. It just doesn't get mentioned, and it was one of the worst attacks by the United States against its own people. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, and you know, it's jarring how much of history we don't learn in school. And it's, it's like, like I remember when I first learned of Emmett Till, I, I was in seventh grade Texas history. I'll never forget. And uh, at a black teacher. And I just kind of wonder, like, it, first of all, when I was told that story, I was shocked that I had never learned that before. And I just kind of wonder now, like, uh, after that point, I hadn't, I hadn't heard it again in school. Like I, I never heard about Emmett Till after that point. It was I only I was only taught that by that one black teacher, and I was just wondering if I hadn't had this black teacher explain this to me, would I have ever learned it? And then I remember when I was in college and I learned about eugenics, and I, I this this concept that I, it's never taught in schools. Like it's this is you're not going to find this in your textbooks. Like so much of black history is just scrubbed. Like the the stuff that you know our country has done to black and brown people like you're just not going to find it and i just kind of it points to the fact that and you can listen to uh the steve kerr podcast uh and they talk about this issue extensively with greg popovich like it points to the fact that we need some sort of education reform because 
it's clear that we're we're not learning enough uh, to understand how important of an issue this is, how important of a hotbed is- issue this is. Like, did, did you like? Let me ask you this question: Do you think in schools today they even talk about the L.A. riots from the nineties? Probably not. I yeah, mean, I haven't. It, I don't hear people ever talk about it. You're one hundred percent right. It's not discussed. It's not discussed. When I was going up in school, I didn't know about that. I, I learned about that by myself. Like I, I didn't I didn't know about um the the Rodney King riots and it's one of those things where like we don't talk about these issues enough so when so once black people come out and say this is this is something that happens every day in this country we are we are less likely to believe it because we don't have that institutional knowledge right and we do, we aren't taught about the way this country has treated black and brown people like we're, it's kind of brushed off oh slavery happened and then segregation happened and that's it that's when racism was dead that's wrong institutional <laughs> yes. racism is still well alive in this country and we just the only difference is we don't talk about it the only difference is now we have camera phones to document this yeah the idea that we have somehow solved racism is deeply mistaken, and our entire conversation about race in this country needs to change. Uh, we have this bizarre idea that doing something racist makes someone a racist forever, and therefore the most important thing to do is to avoid being called a racist for any reason. And that's simply counterproductive. The reality is that we've all been raised in a system which prioritizes white bodies and white stability over everyone else, especially in this instance, we're talking directly like anti-black racism. And it is we have been living the system for ages and we cannot escape its effects. Right. We, we are we are going to act in conjunction with white supremacy at times in our lives. Everyone is going to, because that is what we are trained to do. And the most important thing is to educate yourself and to change your behavior and to change the system. That is what I'm seeing people do right now, which is very important to me, seeing people go out in the streets and listen to a community that has been aggrieved for years and to take their fight on as their own, as well it should be. Uh, I want to say real quick also that like, I'm very flattered to be here, but please please, please find black voices to listen to about this. Do not take my word on anything. I, that, that is like, I feel like my responsibility as a white person in America is to say that I, I need to, I'm here to amplify and support. And I am not a first source, a first hand source for this. Please ask the people who are harmed by this directly. And more importantly, please read and watch and find things created by people who've been fighting this cause for decades. There are so many incredible writers and scholars on these subjects, and I cannot do them even a tiny bit of justice. Like, this is an incredibly important fight. Learn from everyone you can. There is no shortage out there. We are not given this in schools, but the one of the good things about the internet that we have now is that you can find these resources. And if you are willing to deal with the fact that it is going, if you are a white person looking at this right now, it is going to hurt to see these things because you are going to see your part in this. It is a part that you did not audition for. And it's a part that you don't even want, but you are being slotted into it and it's going to hurt to see this. And it's going to have to, because this is bigger than, than how you feel and it's bigger than any one of us 
this is the defining conflict of our time, and we desperately need to be on the correct side of this because we desperately need to reduce the harm and engender a just society. And that is being done right now with people getting out in the streets and making it impossible to ignore this and making it harder for the for these brutalizing police institutions to keep harming people. And we have to keep it going and keep keep fighting harder every day because the fight's not over and it's not going to be over after this. But it's terrifically important and I'm very proud of everyone who has done anything to help. Not even just going in the streets, but doing anything to help. Whatever you can do is something that you need to do and you're doing the right thing for doing it. Yeah, well said. Well said. I mean, like, I think the biggest point you hammered home is that you need kind of em- you need empathy to be able to relate be able to help solve these issues we don't have that in leadership so we're going to need that from everywhere else uh and eventually we're going to need leadership that has empathy and we're going to need uh to transform these institutions frankly like like i hope when once these these protests die down i hope we get systematic change and that's that's the biggest point I, i hope we get from this you know like it's not i hope it's not one of those things where you know we talk about uh, gun reform in this country like every time a, ma- a major shooting comes up and, and then people get fired up about it and then it disappears. I hope this really is a point of reckoning for this specific issue. I really do. Uh, and you mentioned how you would advise other white people to behave. Like I, I would advise um, fellow sports writers. Like, listen, you profit or you benefit from uh, discussing or writing about a predominantly black sport. So it is a, it is uh, it is necessary upon you to discuss these issues. You can no longer ignore them. Like I know there's going to be people people in your mentions belaboring you to stick to sports. I know you're going to lose a lot of followers. I, I get that, but these imp- these issues are too important uh and they affect you. They affect you uh and they affect your industry. They affect the players that you cover. It, you can't you can no longer sit on the sidelines and not talk about it. And uh, I, the point you hammered home about black voices, yeah, like that's really important. I I need to make it, to bring it upon myself to bring more black voices on this podcast to discuss these kind of issues. Um, <coughs> excuse me, but yeah, I mean, this was just an important issue that I felt was important to talk about. Uh, black lives matter. This issue is important. We need significant police reform. We need significant criminal justice reform. Uh, I, I, I know this might turn a lot of people off. But these issues are something you need, you need to listen to. You need to listen to all this. Yeah, we cannot look away from this. We've looked away for too long, and looking directly at it is the only way that we're going to do something about it. Yeah. Um, so the second half of this podcast, I don't even know how to transition from that. Uh, the second half of this podcast is going to be me and Ben Dubose talking about March 1st, Cavs at Rockets, the King James game. Forrest, you remember that game? That is a wild game, and I am excited to hear what you and Ben say about it. We spent an hour talking about it. It is nuts. That game is like there's just like when you go back and watch the game, there's so many things you forget, and like the the play by play breakdown of it is just fascinating and really fun. I enjoyed that conversation. I enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah, guys. I uh, hope you guys enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, we are joined by Ben Dubose of USA Today Sports. Ben, how you doing, man? Doing well, Salman. How are you? I'm doing all right. So before we get into this game, which I'm really excited to talk about, let's talk about the NBA's plan to resume play with 22 teams, which just got approved um, last week. So when you first saw the plan, what was your initial thoughts? 
My initial thoughts were that it's more comprehensive than I expected. The longer the layoff, the more I thought that maybe they'll just bring back the playoff teams. And I wasn't sure how realistic a hybrid model would be, whereas you bring back some, in this case, six teams. They're not currently in the playoffs, but not the eight that are basically, or in some cases, completely out of the mix. Uh, I wasn't sure if that would be realistic. So the more time there was, the more I thought they might go straight to the playoffs. But selfishly, from a fan perspective, I'm excited to see it. Certainly the Rockets, they have a lot to play for. Mathematically, they can be anywhere between the number two spot and the number seven with eight games left to play. I just wasn't sure how realistic it would be given the extra teams in the bubble, given the layoff. But I guess Adam Silver came up with a pretty innovative solution in that if you bring back the six teams that are within six games of the playoffs and you have this play-in, if they get within four games, then everyone is incentivized and the way I see it, the more basketball, the better. So you have these eight regular season games. I think that'll make the the product on the floor in the playoffs better now that you have some warm-up games before they really start counting in a best-of-seven series. So there was no easy option. And, of course, with regards to the health and safety protocols, we'll never know until the players get there and we start seeing how this plays out. Everyone is kind of learning as we go. But on paper, I'm really excited about it. I think it gives you the best shot that you can to have a credible postseason. And I think the Michael Jordan argument was probably correct. Jordan was apparently the one, according to some reports, who told Adam Silver, look, don't worry about these these grand plans. Have it as close to normal with regards to the traditional West and East bracket format, because if you have the unusual timing circumstances, the bubble and something completely new and off the wall, it's going to be even tougher for people to take it as credible With this, you have regular season games, so hopefully the quality of play should be fine when you get to the playoffs, and you have your traditional format, West and East, for best of seven series. The more I think about it, the more I'm excited by it. So I initially liked the plan of 20 teams. Like I still, talking to people, have not gotten a good explanation to why Washington and Phoenix are in this, but I guess the idea here is like, let's preserve it as close as we can to the regular mm-hmm. season and make as many teams happy yes. as we possibly can. Um, and I get that. Uh, still, I, I, if it were up to me, I would do 20 teams, but it is what it is. Uh, you can't have it your way. And I think I think this is, this is probably the closest you can get to a negotiation, trying to keep as many teams out of it, out of that bubble as you possibly can to, you know, kind of, obviously the health and safety is number one. You don't want like a thousand people. Right. In, you know, in and around Orlando at that time. It's just just too much. And I think this was probably the best compromise between those two, um, those two drastic norms, but we finally have a season and I'm excited about it. Uh, I, I think there, there are a lot of interesting dynamics about restarting right now that I still have not completely wrapped my head around. Uh, number one, how, are all these teams just the same? Like, like, and what I mean by that are like, are, are they just going to enter with the same rhythm, the same cadence, the same play that they were before the break, as opposed to after? How much does this affect play? Uh, does a regular season help in preventing an ugly playoffs? I hope it does. I hope. I hope all these teams are uh, fully tuned up before playoff time. But God knows. Um, and obviously, there's the injury component of this where I'm a little worried about guys taking four months off and going straight to regular season play. Uh, hopefully, 
uh, these tra- this training camp uh, really helps prevent um, you know the the the, possi- the possibility of injuries coming up again. Yeah, I agree with you. That's something to watch in the German soccer games. They've had more soft tissue injuries. I don't think since that since they went to the season, they have some positive COVID tests during the run-up, which is to be expected because it was before they really did the uh, bubble-type environment. But I think that's largely been under control. The bigger issue has been the soft tissue injuries, so you worry about that. Uh, to your previous point about the number of teams in the bubble, 20 versus 22, yeah, I mean, 20 would feel more realistic in terms of who deserves to be there. But the bottom line is they're trying to fulfill these TV contracts. And so that way, anybody that's close, they can get to 70 games, which is a big number in terms of the local TV contracts around the league and everyone not having to owe more money beyond what they're already uh, losing. As far as the timing of the rest of it, I'm excited from a Rockets perspective because I think they're a team that disproportionately could benefit from it when you look at the switch to small ball in the middle of the season, when you look at the fact they had lost four of their last five games, they weren't in a great place when the season stopped. You also had some pretty high mileage. James Harden, P.J. Tucker, Russell Westbrook, Eric Gordon has not been healthy all year. So you've got one of the more veteran-laden teams in the league, perhaps the most, and now you give them a chance to rest, to recoup. And I like the point that Gerald Morey made in that you give them this training camp with Mike D'Antoni, and it gives MDA a chance to get exposed to the guys they have acquired on the fly. Certainly Jeff Green, Damari Carroll, maybe even Bruno as well. But the point is you got these guys basically a month before the season shut down in early February. And for a contender that's trying to win every game because you're trying to get the best seed that you can. By the way, the seed is less important now as well. You don't want to be the seventh seed. You don't want to play the Clippers in round one. But other than that, since there's no home court, you know whether you're a six, a five, a four, a three, it's more about the matchup than it is your exact seed. So with the Rockets, they've got a chance with this trading camp and even these games to experiment. And you know, in the normal season, I don't think D'Antoni would play the likes of uh, Carroll. That's someone that Rockets Twitter I know wanted him to play. And early on, Carroll basically just got mop-up duty. Maybe now Carroll gets a chance to see if maybe he can beat out Ben McLemore for some minutes because he's a little bigger and offers more defensive versatility. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying that now that the players are really on level footing entering this training camp, which is going to last basically a month, and then these regular season games, you know, the, the league's called them seeding games, but even seeding isn't that important in the grand scheme now that you don't have home court advantage. The Rockets, having brought in all these new players at the deadline, maybe there's a path for some of those guys to contribute in a way that they were not most likely going to with the usual format. So lots of teams can probably make that argument, but I think when you combine that with the ages of you know the Rockets' closing lineup, Harden, Russ, Gordon, Covington, Tucker, all of those guys are at least 29 years old. Four of the five are in their 30s. You combine that with the new players, with the change to full-time small ball, and I do think that when you consider the combination of those things, you can make a compelling case that the Rockets are in a position to uh, disproportionately benefit. Yeah, and what you mentioned there about not having to worry about playing every series on the road to me is the biggest point there, right? Like, yeah. if yep. you were if you were to point to the singular reason the Rockets are in a beneficial position entering the playoffs, that would be it, right? Entering the season, I mean, closing the season as a six seed, the Rockets really didn't have much path to mobility. Like, perhaps they got to a four seed and, and didn't have to play round one on the road, but but. For the most part, they were looking at having to play rounds two, three, and possibly yep. four on the road. 
and this avoids that. You don't have to play every series on the road. Um, let me ask you a question before we get back to the Rockets. Um, does the crowd thing bother you? What you mean, piping and noise? The no, lack I, of what, crowd? does just playing without a crowd? Do you think there's going to be a noticeable difference, and do you think it matters as much as we are making it out to be? I think we'll get over it very quickly. I, I've been watching a lot of German soccer. It's one of those things. It stands out the first time you do it. It seems really odd, but you adjust very quickly. And what really kind of convinced me, when I was watching The Last Dance, they had that footage of the uh, really intense uh, intra-squad uh, scrimmage that the 92 Dream Team did in an empty gym out in Spain. And, you know, it's different. But in many ways, think about how when we play basketball, how intense it can get at times, especially if... You know, it's a game in which you really want to play well. It's going to be different because we look at the NBA from an entertainment perspective. We all have all these years of history. But at the end of the day, it's about the product. I'm pretty convinced that, you know, there'll be some shock value to listeners the first week, to viewers. But I think as long as the quality is there and the guys are giving it everything that they have and the quality of play is what we expect it to be, I think it's going to be fine. We'll adjust pretty quickly. So. I think what you mentioned about it being a shock at the beginning is pretty bad. Like it's it's going to be super weird in the beginning. Yep. But if they pipe in crowd noise, so when once you get those momentous plays, like Dame hits a step back three over, uh, God knows whoever, and the the other team calls a timeout, and and you can pump in some crowd noise to emphasize that kind of moment. Uh, the, the significance of that moment, and you can kind of even out home court and away court balance with that kind of noise. I think I think you'll get over it pretty quickly. It's gonna be a we- it's gonna be a weird visual on TV to just hear noise without uh, without a crowd. But I do think uh, the players themselves. I mean, most of the games they play in general are without crowds. Like they they they, they play right. they play several games in practice. They play games in the summer. Um, they most of the games they played in their life have been without crowds, and I I don't think it's gonna bother them too much. And initially, I mean, initially it'll, it'll be it'll be weird, but I think after that they'll get pretty used to it. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you said earlier about the injuries. That's what I worry more about. After the long layoff, are there injuries? Are these guys rusty? If you can combine the lack of usual fans with a clearly substandard level of play then yeah, at that point, and if it continues more than just a couple of days, then yeah, at some point you wonder about, okay, are people just going to say this season isn't really real? But assuming that the level of play is there and that there's no real worry on that front, then eventually I think we'll uh, adjust. It might take a few days, but I think we'll adjust as long as the quality of play is there, especially those of us that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, the odds are you're a pretty devoted NBA fan. So I think especially those of us that love basketball It'll take a few days, but assuming the quality of play is there, everything will be fine. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, BetOnline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC matches all day, every day, live on their website. Visit BetOnline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, all caps, for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, blue wire. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Right, and getting back to the Rockets, uh, let's talk about this game because I've been wanting sure. to talk about this game for months. So, 
Uh, this is Cavs at Rockets, March 1st, 2015. And if I were to pick my favorite Rockets game of the decade, it would be this one. Because yep. I felt like I learned something. And I'll explain that in a minute. But first, when I texted you about this game, you seemed excited. And yep. I, I know why I love this game. But why does it re- resonate with you so much? So this was on my list of best games of the decade at Rockets Fire. I put those together in late December when 2019 was coming to a close. This was one of the most memorable. I was there covering it. So I can remember not just during the game, but after. And I'm not going to say it's as as meaningful as a big playoff game, because certainly, you know, the closeout games against Utah and then anything in the 2018 Western Conference Finals, the stakes are way greater. I get it. But within the context of the regular season or even the first round of the playoffs, that had everything. James Harden, that was his real emergence into a true MVP caliber player that season to see him go toe-to-toe with LeBron James. But Salman, the reason it jumped out to me, what I remember most about it, wasn't just what happened on the floor. You had the extracurricular stuff with the kick. Even though I don't think it was intentional, it was a little bit reckless that Harden sent LeBron's way. He got suspended a a game. Uh, It was the day after the NBA went back and reviewed it and gave him a one-game suspension. But what really makes this one stand out to me was the drama, not just during the game, but in the hours after when it immediately went final you could tell that lebron was bothered i was in that locker room and lebron is not a guy who typically goes after other players especially other stars in the media he's usually pretty chummy you could tell this got under his skin in fact i think he kind of exerted some political pressure he said that it absolutely was not a basketball play that hardened kick that got him beneath the belt he said that the league office should look into it ultimately they did you could tell he was bothered by that a couple hours after that, you had the Rockets social media team. This is back when Chad was leading the way. Uh, but I believe it was Jose Lopez that did the digital part of it that put out the King James graphic, of course, referring to James Harden, trolling LeBron a little bit. And at the end of the night was when LeBron James himself put out on Instagram what we all know as the sad mirror selfie, looking himself in the mirror, looking sad and talking about trying to overcome adversity. Because, of course, at the end of uh, overtime, he went to the free throw line, Cavs down one, had an opportunity to tie or win the game, and missed them both with just three seconds left in OT. And the reason I share all of those stories away from the court, the extracurricular, is because that tells you that it clearly meant something to the other team as well. That, to me, is what makes it a truly great game when it's not just about you, when it has resonance for the other team as well. And You know, I know the Cavaliers, they had burst onto the scene that year because they'd gotten LeBron James. But let's be real. He's arguably the best player ever. Any LeBron team is an automatic contender. He was 30 years old then at the peak of his powers. He had been in the NBA Finals last four years, winning two of them. That Cavs team eventually went to the Finals. They won it the next year. So that team could very easily just say, well, whatever. It's a regular season game and we'll get over it. They didn't. It stung. And of course, it was a Sunday afternoon. It was a nationally televised showcase. But they wanted to win this game between LeBron's postgame reaction, between the Instagram post, between the King James that the Rockets sent out from their social media team and that going viral. All the storylines in the hours and days after it, you could tell that it wasn't just like, oh, it was a feel good win for the Rockets. But at the end of the day, it's a regular season game. Who really cares? No, you could tell that this resonated on the national landscape. LeBron James, the premier player of this generation, was pretty obviously rattled by it. And to this day, I think that game kind of contributes to the fact that LeBron has never been all that chummy 
with James Harden or the Rockets. I'm not going to say that that game by itself did it, but I think it maybe kind of soured things a little bit. And to this day, and it's not like they're enemies, but I don't think, you know, LeBron's typically a very social guy amongst his fellow NBA players. And other than when uh, Chris Paul was here, his really good friend, he's never been, had that type of kinship with the Rockets. And of course, part of it, 2018, a lot of people expected him to give the Rockets a lot of heavy consideration in free agency. He didn't. And I think really that just sort of, I'm not going to say that game by itself did it, but I think that maybe, you know, at a bare minimum, I think you can say that it rattled LeBron, it rattled the Cavaliers. When you consider the magnitude of that team, how great they were, to be able to do that in a regular season game, it shows you that it's not just a feel-good win for the Rockets. It was a win that resonated on a larger scale. And so to me, that's about as big as it gets so, for a regular season game. Right. So a few years ago, I went around asking people to pick a game where you felt comfortable saying James Harden could be the best player on a championship team. Essentially the game where James Harden arrived with like a capital A. And I had a game in my head, but I didn't tell the people what it was. But the game that consistently came up was this one. And I was surprised because that was my answer too. And I'm willing to bet if you conducted a similar poll today with 10 iconic James Harden games, the one that people would think he ascended into the top five player status would be this one. And it goes beyond the stats. Obviously, Harden was played well in this one. 33 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 steals, and 2 blocks. It's mainly how he carried himself. Like, he went toe-to-toe with LeBron James and came out on top. It was like, in his head, he was thinking, LeBron's in this game, but I'm the best player on this court, and I'm going to prove it. And whether or not you believe that to be true, it was clear that Harden believed it to be true in that moment. And that's why I love this game. And by the way, the eight rebounds you mentioned for Harden in that game, one of those eight was after LeBron missed that second free throw that would have tied it. If the Cavs get that rebound and they have Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson in this game, they can do you know what the Celtics did this year at that game, that wild end of February and off the missed free throw, potentially win the game. Harden was the guy who got that last rebound, so he was willing to drive. He was willing to get physical on offense. Uh, 12 of his 18 shots were from inside the arc, so it wasn't a game where he just had all these step-back threes. Of course, this was earlier in his career, so he didn't really do that nearly as heavily as he does now anyway. But yeah, you could see it on both ends. He was intense. He was physical. 2015 was the year that, really 2014, the year before, was when he got mocked so much for what he did or didn't do on the defensive end of the court. We know all the Vine clips that went around, and this was a different James Harden. He dialed it in on really both sides of the court. And so, yeah, him getting that last rebound, boxing out from the missed free throw that LeBron put up, I thought that was a pretty fitting way to end it. And I would agree with you that that game, I don't necessarily know that that game in and of itself was brilliant other than the opponent, but I would say it was the most memorable game of Harden's breakthrough season because we all take for granted now how great James Harden is as long as he continues to be in his prime. And the way that I define a great player in the NBA, Salman, barring extreme circumstances, the truly great players, you can put them almost anywhere and they basically guarantee that team 50 wins. LeBron, KD, Kawhi, Harden, you can put them almost anywhere and barring crazy injuries, extreme circumstances, that team is going to win 50. That was the year, 2015, that we really saw that Harden 
could be that guy because Dwight Howard only played in 41 of the 82 games. And when you look, you know, it's easy to say now because we take Harden for granted. But at that time, that was really his breakout. Two years before that in 2013, that was his first year as a starter when he got to Houston. He had not proven anything in terms of the top level. Could he get to that tier? Everybody knew based on efficiency numbers that he was good. But could he be an all-time great? We didn't know that. And that first-year team, you know, they overachieved expectations. But at the end of the day, they were an eight seed for a reason. They lost in round one. And then in year two, you know, they got Dwight Howard in free agency. They won 54 games. But there was always just something wondering, or a lot of us were left wondering about the mental state because clearly he was not dialed in most of the year on the defensive end of the floor. They lost in round one, a very disappointing series to the Blazers. And folks just wondered, okay, James Harden is very good, but can he be great? Can he be the alpha dog on a regular NBA contender? And 2015 really answered that to go 56 and 26, the number two seed in the West in a year that Dwight Howard, the other all-star entering the year, missed half the season. That, to me, was the year that James Harden went from just a really great talent to a really great player. To win 56 games with all the injuries they had, including Dwight Howard, was a phenomenal achievement and so that's where i go with this cleveland game it's you know the game in and of itself was very good but it's also it's the most memorable game of the season in which james harden went from you know that guy we saw in 2013 2014 okay that's very good but is this truly the alpha dog on a perennial contender there were still some questions to that 2015 that's the year of course he ended up winning the players mvp voted on by his peers 2015 answered that authoritatively. And I think that is why this game stands out to me beyond just the storylines of Harden and LeBron. It's the most memorable, memorable game of the season that really defined uh, James Harden's breakout and his ascension into uh, NBA superstardom. And that's the game where you felt comfortable saying that he could be the best player on a championship team. Like I, I think be- yeah. before that, uh, a lot of people believed it, but this game kind of reinforced it for most of the population watching the NBA. Like I think... After this game, you felt very comfortable that Harden had potentials to reach that kind yeah. of level as a player, and th- that's the, that's the game where I bought it. And I was like, "Yeah, this guy's the real deal. This is this guy has the potential to take the Rockets to heights they've never seen before." And obviously, that season was the time was the season they reached the Western Conference Finals for the first time in twenty years. Like, so it was kind of a foreshadowing in that way. Um, another thing that made this game so special: the building. So this was obviously a Sunday ABC game, as you mentioned. Yep. And also the rare once-in-a-blue-moon occasion where the Toyota Center crowd were in their seats before tip-off. And it was a packed house. It was an important game. The Rockets were 41-18 and at the time. The Cavs were 37-24. and This was LeBron's first year back in Cleveland. Two marquee teams on a nationally televised game. NFL season's over. The Super Bowl was last month. The sports fans are all tuned in, and I was in the building for that game. That environment was fantastic it was legitimately a packed house all the diehards were losing their minds yeah and i think the events of the third quarter when it got chippy that played into it even more i mentioned the kick which again i don't think harden did it intentionally but led to that we'll get back to that Uh, yeah yeah i mean there there was that play and then later there was a sequence in which i think pat beverly got into it with lebron or someone in the cavaliers i remember beverly being an instigator like we all loved him when he was in houston for doing 
But yeah, the Harden-LeBron play, you know, part of that play also showed you how much LeBron wanted it. Because what led to that, Harden was trying, or, or LeBron was trying to tie up Harden. I forget if it was either a jump ball or a timeout. But the whistle had blown, and LeBron held on to that ball an extra split second. It was sort of like a statement that, hey, I'm here. This is a statement game. And as I mentioned, it wasn't just for the Rockets. It was for Cleveland as well. It had that feel. And, of course, what happened, the force of uh, LeBron doing that kind of forced Harden to the ground to maintain control of the ball. And uh, Harden kind of kicked his leg out, and it did connect. I don't think he was trying to connect. I think it's sort of the version of, um, you know, the NBA – they used to have a lot more incidents where guys, when they got the rebound, they would swing their elbows a little bit to create space. They weren't trying to hit somebody in the head. It's just, you know, kind of a warning shot of, hey, you need to give me a little bit of space or this can happen. Now, the NBA cracked down on it, of course, because, well, it's not good if you have a head injury and it, it results from a guy swinging his elbows. So they've cracked down on that in recent years. And this was sort of just an offshoot of that. It was reckless. Harden wanted some space. He was frustrated. He kicked out his legs. And it just so happened that he connected with LeBron behind the belt. So I don't think it was intentional. I do believe it was reckless. You can argue that he deserved the suspension during the game. He got the flagrant one. But the point is, getting back to what you were saying about the atmosphere, that made it, that got that crowd, and then Beverly played into it as well. Corey Brewer did. It, it turned that crowd into a frenzy. And then it gets close in the fourth quarter. You have this back and forth down the stretch. It gets to overtime. And of course, uh, down one, LeBron goes to the free throw line with two free throws to tie or win the game. There's nothing that gets an NBA crowd more jazzed than that because everyone in the building is trying to intimidate them into a miss. All of that's just sort of combined to get that crowd to a fever pitch. And yeah, I'm with you. I've never seen anything like it except very deep in the playoffs at Toyota Center. Right. And let's talk about the lead up to that kick. So it's back and forth for most of the game. But the, the Rockets suddenly take an 11-point lead with 7.37 left in third quarter. And you just know, you just know it's not going to last. Uh, the Cavs hit three straight threes with the next minute, and LeBron has either made or assisted in all of these threes. Uh, the lead is down to six. At this point, LeBron and Harden are both taking more scoring responsibilities on for their respective teams. But again, like still plenty of time left. And the Cavs are starting to hedge on pick and rolls, meaning they're doubling up, up top on Harden when he's, starting, when he's trying to run a, a high screen and roll. With two minutes remaining left in the third quarter, LeBron and James Jones, by the way, God, they, that makes you feel so old. Le, James Jones, <laughs> a general manager now. Uh, yeah. LeBron and James Jones trap Harden up top. Harden tries to protect the ball. LeBron becomes more aggressive. Harden falls to the floor. And now we're at that controversial moment where Harden's on the floor. LeBron's still trying to get the ball despite, as you said, the ref having blown the whistle. Harden's still trying to protect the ball. And it, and it appears that he inadvertently kicks LeBron in the groin. So let's break this, this, let's break this down. So <laughs> yeah. in this moment, I'll be honest, I didn't notice the groin kick. Because it happened so fast, and there was a skirmish, and it was just too much craziness. And all I know is that LeBron tried to get the ball, and it, he appeared to be upset at the official for some reason. And my question is, did you notice it initially, and what was your reaction? Not initially, but five seconds later I did, because I was covering it as media. And as you know, the monitors are about five, seven seconds delayed in most cases if it's tuned to the national channel. So I as soon as it happened and I wasn't sure exactly what went down, I turned and then I saw the ABC, uh, 
version of it. And then you could tell. So I adjusted pretty quickly because I had the monitor on me at the time. But yeah, it's one of those, the kick was intentional, but it wasn't, it it wasn't, I'm trying to hit you in the groin. The aim wasn't anything dirty. Yeah. What I go back to, it's just a different version of, it's the same principle as back in the old days of the NBA when guys would get the rebound and then they would kind of swing their arms to create space. And of course, uh, with a little bit of bad luck, you can hit a guy in the head and something bad can happen. And of course, that's why they have to make sure that, uh, that they crack down on that for the good of the overall game. But Harden was just frustrated that LeBron stayed with it. And to me, that's the key takeaway, by the way. The fact that LeBron, even after the whistle, is still staying with it and it physically forces, because LeBron is as tough as it gets, LeBron or forces Harden to the ground, you know, it tells you that it's one of those games for LeBron. He really wanted it. And Harden, that's just frustration. And he kicked his legs out just trying to get some space. He was frustrated. And as it turns out, got him right in the groin. Yeah. And you mentioned how that was a back in the old days kind of thing, like swing your your elbows out. And, you know, you still kind of see that. Like this, remember, this was the playoffs where Kelly Olinick. Uh, tore Kevin Love's shoulder that way by oh, just yeah. swinging uh, yep. and try, trying to gain control of that yeah. rebound. And a lot of that is just it, it's just instinct, Solomon. Yeah. It's you try and legislate it out as best you can because these are the best players in the world and you want to keep them healthy. But these guys have been playing on playgrounds since you know they're seven, eight years old. There's only so much you can do. You can implement policies, and I understand why the NBA does it. You want it to be as safe as possible. And I agree with it. But just in terms of what happens on the floor, especially when it gets heated and it's an intense game like that, a lot of it is just pure instinct. And, you know, you you hope that it never happens, but on occasion it's going to. There's no way you can be 100% on that. So looking back on it and watching the replay, I think they were both wrong. And LeBron shouldn't have hovered over Harden after the whistle was blown. And Harden, whether it was intentional or not, like he, he clearly wasn't aiming for it, in my opinion should not be kicking people to protect the basketball. Like, what are we doing? You're 25 years old at this time. It's late in the game, and your, te- your team needs you to finish it off. You know you shouldn't be doing that. And I thought the initial flagrant one was appropriate, and I thought yeah. Le- LeBron was clearly upset about it, and he uh, talked about it after the game. Like, this is LeBron after the game. Obviously, that's not a basketball play, James said afterwards. Obviously, the league will probably take a look at it. I have no idea why he would do that, but two competitors just trying to go at it, and he won this one. So the league looks into it, and Harden earns a one-game suspension, and I thought that was a little unnecessary. Like, oh I, yeah, I I agree with you. I think like I think if Taj Gibson had said had said what LeBron said, like like Harden doesn't get that suspension. Like the fact that it was LeBron saying it, yeah, clearly pressure, right? Yeah. And by the way, I don't think LeBron says that, and I hinted at this earlier. I don't think he says that if Cleveland wins that game. I think if Cleveland wins that game, if he makes those free throws. I think it's one of those things that he could more easily look past. I think when you combine that happening and then Houston winning the game, a little bit of humiliation for LeBron with him missing those two free throws at the end, I think all of that it just led to him just sort of um, just feeling overwhelmed by everything that happened and lashing out. And I think you could see that in that Instagram post, which is pretty rare. I mean, even by LeBron standards, there's a reason why. Many of us still post that sad LeBron uh, mirror meme today because it's not many times after uh, NBA games will you see a player, let alone LeBron James, do something like that. So I just think it was kind of a perfect storm of circumstances. I think everybody on that court fed off the energy of the arena, as you mentioned earlier, and it was just kind of a perfect storm of circumstances in which obviously it's great for the winner, 
for the loser. Um, you know, meltdown is an extreme term because obviously it's a regular season game. They'll regroup. They made the finals. So it's not like it caused any catastrophic damage. But in a few hours after that game, do I think the intensity of it kind of colored his reaction to a lot of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm surprised you mentioned at the top about how you, you think LeBron LeBron's relationship with the Rockets is affected because I actually had that written down in my notes. Like, I, I, I 100% agree with you. I, I think the the relationship James Harden and LeBron had with each other fundamentally changed after that kick, after that game. Um, LeBron and Harden up until that point were pretty good friends. Like, they were on yeah. the 2012 Olympics well, together, yep. and they were, you know, they were pretty close. They talked after games, all that. After this, that that stuff just shuts down. And I don't think this was it was a, a it was like a one moment kind of thing. I think the Rockets waving Carmelo Anthony probably had something to do with LeBron uh, raising his ire at the Rockets and the Hong Kong stuff. Like th- there's there's a lot of stuff there. You can dig into it on a separate podcast. But the, but I think this was definitely the first real moment where LeBron's an- animosity towards the Rockets started to get ired up. Yeah, I agree. It's it put the wheels in motion and. In terms of what happened in 2018 for the agency, I think it's clear now that LeBron wanted the Lakers and Hollywood for more than just basketball. There were a lot of off-court family interests at play there as well. But given what the Rockets had set up for Harden or for LeBron, excuse me, to never even really give Harden and the Rockets serious consideration. And if you remember the night that Harden was awarded the 2018 MVP, there was a press conference or an availability after it, and Harden was asked about bringing in LeBron or some sort of acquisition and Harden's response is basically, why do we need that? You know, his view is we have enough as it is. And it certainly was not the recruitment type answer that you had heard from uh, Chris Paul or that you hear a lot from a lot of superstars around the league, especially if one, a big name like LeBron is on the market. We know how chummy this league can be amongst its superstars when it's that period in late June leading up to July. And so I think it didn't make them enemies. I think there's mutual respect from a basketball standpoint. But yeah, after that game, I just never got the sense that they were especially close. And with Harden, that's kind of usual. Other than a few guys, Jimmy Butler is one guy that Harden, I think, is genuinely close with. For the most part, James is a little bit more reserved. But with LeBron, it's really noticeable because LeBron, unlike Harden, is much more of a natural sort of mingler. You can see how he interacts with these stars on other teams. And other than when Chris Paul was here, it's never been that way with the Rockets. And that was obviously just a very brief period. So I do buy that. And and then actually, there's another game you didn't even mention. God, we could go on forever about this. But remember the first year that LeBron went to the Lakers? Remember when Josh Hart started holding his hand behind his back guarding Harden. Was that, that with was the Lakers the December... or was that yep. with the Pelicans? No, that was with the, the Lakers. It was December 2018. I think Harden went for 50. It was Rockets Lakers. It was a Thursday night TNT game. Uh, this was at the start of his streak in December 2018. And LeBron was on that team. Now, I can't remember if LeBron actually, yeah, I think he did on one occasion did the, uh, you know, I'm holding my own hand behind my back. I thought it was very childish at the time because you just need to be more disciplined but the bottom line is there's lots of instances like that where you can just see that lebron who's usually pretty chummy and you know people have gotten on lebron for not being as cutthroat that's one of his criticisms that unlike say michael jordan larry bird you don't have the hatred 
when LeBron goes up against his other big stars of this era. I don't know if I say that would say that there's hatred between LeBron and the Rockets or LeBron is Harden, but there's not that friendliness that there is between LeBron and a lot of other peers. And I do agree with you. I think a lot of it started on that March 1st, 2015 game. Yeah, I, there, there's definitely something there, and it started after this game. So LeBron goes off after the skirmish. The Rockets lose a little bit of momentum, and the Cavs proceed to take a three-point lead uh, with 314 remaining in the third quarter. LeBron makes a heavily contested fadeaway two going to his left over Trevor Ariza, and this is where it gets interesting. So up until this point, Iman Shumpert and J.R. Smith are each taking turns guarding Harden, but now yep. Le- LeBron takes it yep. upon himself to guard Harden on the very next possession, and Harden's just slowly bringing the ball up, and, Le- and Le- LeBron's just clapping and pulling his shorts up as if to say, let's go, man, let's see, let's see what you got. And Harden just continues to casually walk it up and weighs his option. And Demo gets ready to set the screen up top for Harden. Harden waves him off and proceeds to isolate on LeBron. He crosses him over, gets the basket, and gets fouled. And the, the crowd just loses their Like it, the, I mean, LeBron was still a pretty good defensive player at this point in his career. And to see him get crossed up like that was jarring. Yeah, it was. I mean, there were so many moments and again as mentioned earlier this was attacking Harden this was one of those on both ends of the court it was as physical as it gets and so he embraced that challenge not just mentally but physically as well all those were really good signs another play that I think of was the one late in overtime remember when Harden and LeBron had the uh, square dancing thing I don't remember okay so it, it was yeah we call it the square dancing thing because they went around in a circle so the Rockets were up by four with about a minute left in overtime and LeBron was on Harden and it was the classic play. And of course, Harden operates in the gray within the rules. We all know that in which did Harden bait LeBron into fouling him or did Harden literally hook him? And what happened, their arms are intertwined and they go around in a circle and oh, I remember funny, this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I call it square dancing because they went around and around. Harden had five or six steps in there. If it's not a foul on LeBron, it has to be a travel. I mean, this is five or six steps. It's not even close. But it was one of those where the official just pretty clearly was making a point. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a call. And of course, when you do that, you're sort of uh, making an impact in a different way, but that's a, a different podcast about officiating gripes. But the official was not going to weigh in. What ended up happening, they didn't call a foul on LeBron, they didn't call a foul on Harden, they didn't call a travel, they just let them go, and the shot clock ended up expiring at the end of that sequence. But that, and there's a still photo that I used when I recapped this game for games of the decade in which their arms are interlocked and LeBron is so angry he is staring at the official screaming you know trying to say that he's got my arm and of course with Harden we know that again he operates within you know I call it shades of gray in the rule book and it just comes down to exactly your interpretation did he bait LeBron successfully into locking arms or was Harden the guy that locked LeBron's arm to try and trick the official that's kind of in the eye of the beholder it was a close call, and ultimately it didn't decide the game. I'm not sure it was wrong anyway, because that example was very, very close. But it plays into what we were saying earlier in that you could see the intensity. There's a lot of things about the Rockets, about James Harden, that for various reasons have rubbed LeBron the wrong way. 
that was another one of those moments. And the Cavs did come back. What, what ended up happening, so that, I watched this earlier today, that happened with a minute left, the Rockets were up four. The Cavs got the ball after the shot clock violation. J.R. Smith missed a three. He had a bad game shooting that day. Uh, it came back out to LeBron. They got the long rebound, and LeBron drilled the three. That cut it to one, and that set the stage for when, in the final 10 seconds, LeBron right, the free throws, went into yeah. the paint and the free throws. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a bunch of little moments you can go back, like between Harden and LeBron, like, which is why this game is so interesting to me. Like, I, I, fe- I feel like I really learned something about Harden from this game because the, the, the way he just interacts with LeBron, like, he's not backing down. Um, yep. And so on, uh, that happens. Like, he, LeBron guards him, he crosses him up, whatever. So the next possession, Harden proceeds to guard LeBron as if to say, I can play this game too. And he does a pretty good job for those few possessions. But LeBron's also just off. Like, he's missing a couple of jumpers in a row. And at this point, the game has become a one on one slog fest. And the Harden makes this full court pass to Josh Smith, with the baby hook over LeBron. And Harden's bringing the ball up in this half jog pace right now. And he crosses over J.R. Smith. Gets pushed off by Tristan Thompson at the rim and hits the and one layup and is on the floor beating his chest yep. and yep. the building erupts and that's the defining image to me. Yep. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to go to a lot of Rockets games over the past ten years and this is easily the loudest I've ever heard the Toyota Center in person. Like it was like Harden putting a punctuation mark to what had been an MVP yep. worthy season. Yeah, and it did devolve late into just an isolation fest as can be expected, especially when it gets physical. The refs were not calling a lot of fouls in either direction on that day. The one thing that you could argue for Harden beyond winning the game, his 33 points came on 18 shots. LeBron put up 35, 37 points, but it took him 35 shots to get there, which is very atypical for LeBron. It also shows you, in my opinion, how much LeBron wanted that game. You rarely see LeBron try and take over like that. Fortunately for the Rockets, he made just 15 of the 35, so he wasn't all that accurate, and he missed eight of his 11 free throws, just three of 11 on the day, which is, God, really ugly. But yeah, um, that sequence in which late in regulation that Harden went in, got the basket plus the foul, and kind of beating his chest on the ground, that to me is a defining image from a Rocket standpoint, from a Cavs standpoint. It's uh, LeBron missing those free throws at the end. But yeah, this was an iconic one for the Rockets. By the way, just a factoid, without looking at the box score, Solomon, do you know who played the most minutes for the Rockets in that game? I'm going to guess Trevor Reza. No, Terrence Jones. Wow. And this is just something that stands out to me looking at the box score. He played 44 minutes. Uh, Demo played 31, and they needed it because the Cavs had Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson on that front line. You needed flexibility. Dwight Howard was out injured for the Rockets. Kyrie Irving was out injured for the Cavs. So both teams were effectively down an all-star, but you had LeBron, you had Harden. So of course it's still a big, big time game, but Terrence Jones played 44 minutes. Most of anyone on the Rockets, 19 points, seven boards. Demo had 16 points in his 31 minutes. That's it's an under the radar thing. But if those two guys stay healthy, that could have really helped the Rockets this past decade. Maybe they don't bottom out to the extent they did in the ensuing season when 41 and 41, everything went wrong. Terrence Jones and Demo, the Rockets did not use high draft capital on those guys. Those were middle of the first round at best. And to develop them the way the Rockets did, two agile big men that could shoot threes, and to see them play that well in a big-time spot against a team with Kevin Love, 
Tristan Thompson in their primes? That's one of those what ifs, because I think what happened, not saying they were perfect players, but in terms of how they fell off, both had a lot to do with injuries. Matiunas, he ended up uh, having back surgery less than a month after that. And it was also the back injury that led to his trade with uh, the Rockets and the Pistons being voided over a year later. He has never been a consistent NBA player since. Terrence Jones, that was the year that he had the issues with nerve damage in his leg and his foot. He never really played more than 50 games after that in a single season. So I think both of those guys at the time in their mid-20s, when you look at drafting them in the mid to late first round, the Rockets got pretty good bang for their buck. And they were those two guys were an underrated part of how the Rockets survived and won 56 games, the number two seed in the West, despite Dwight Howard missing over 41 games. That was on display. It was a subtle thing. It's certainly not an iconic game for either of them. But it's sort of how the Rockets made it work that year without Dwight Howard. But also think back, you know, looking at it in hindsight, it's like, damn, if those two guys, if at least one of them could have stayed healthy, I'm not saying they're a game changer by any stretch of the imagination. Let's not get crazy. But I think if either uh, Terrence Jones or Donatus Yunus, if those guys can stay healthy, that's certainly a player that could have helped you over the next two or three years more than what the Rockets had with both of those guys ultimately bottoming out and I think uh, two years later, neither was on the team anymore. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I think this was the season where like I was permanently out on Terrence Jones. I think this was the season that kind of hammered it home for me. His inconsistency was just maddening. And yeah, his, his three-point shooting was, I mean, he was like a 30% three-point shooter. He was he was making an effort to shoot threes, but I mean, you could, you could clearly yeah. see it wasn't comfortable for him. I think his future in the NBA was probably closer to a small ball five, if anything. Yeah. And but but Demo like I'm still to a certain extent on Demo Island like I I, I loved Demo Demo his footwork was just like for a role player it was some of the best footwork, footwork I've ever seen he he was in the post really really talented and his passing ability at the high post his yeah. uh, his ability to make reads uh, with guys cutting was just really impressive to me I thought when the Spurs picked him up I was like yeah they got they got a gem here they're gonna recuperate his career and he'll be fine. Uh, didn't work out that way. Obviously, there's you have a lot uh, of ire to point to B.J. Armstrong, uh, that guy. Uh, you're talking about fumbling negotiations. That guy fumbled a negotiation big time. Lost, yep. lost Demo millions and millions of dollars. Um, but yeah, that, that is that is interesting. I, I had no idea. I mean, looking back at it, I guess you could say Terrence was in a lot of the big plays uh, for the Rockets in this game. So yeah, and, I, I suppose yeah, it makes and sense. I would- I would point out that while I think you're right that that was the year that people understandably lost faith in Terrence Jones, that was also the year that he had that really bad uh, foot situation, the nerve issue that basically he couldn't even feel his foot for a couple of weeks. The Rockets kind of kept it under wraps. They didn't announce until he was closer to returning what had actually happened. It was pretty scary, the nerve situation that was going on. And so that's I'm not saying that it's everything, but I do think the medical concern was a part of what happened to Terrence Jones that year. He still had flashes. Certainly the Cavs game was one of them, but he was never quite as consistent as he was even the year previous when it seemed like that there was still some decent upside. Mati Yunus, I'm in full agreement. I liked his game. I thought he was a great fit, especially as he improved his three-point shot, his footwork in the post. He was so nimble, and I think the back issue had a lot to do with him washing out. Now, both of those guys are still playing. Uh, Terrence Jones in the Philippines last year, Mati Yunus in China. 
So it's not like they're retired, but certainly they're not the NBA players that people expected them to be. And that's just one of those what ifs, not a big thing, not saying that all of a sudden Rockets history changes and they for sure won a championship. But yeah, that game, when you look back at it, how did the Rockets win without Dwight Howard against a Cavs team that was really dialed in? Terrence Jones and uh, Donatus Money Units did a lot. Now, certainly, you, you know, you mentioned Ariza. We should not take him for granted. He was close with 42 minutes. And of course, he had to guard LeBron a lot. And he was really at his prime then as a defender. So Ariza, Beverly, I mentioned Beverly earlier. I think he was a big part of getting the crowd as involved as they were those guys. But honestly, Rockets fans know Trevor Reza and Patrick Beverly. They know what those guys brought in the middle of this decade and what they meant to the team. And they're appreciated. Monty Eunice and Jones are a couple of guys who, you know, not not at the level of Beverly or Reza, not saying that, but they had their moments and maybe a little bit better luck injury wise. Uh, they would have stuck around a little bit longer than they did. Let's see. Demo is 29 right now. Here's a, yeah. here's a prediction. Uh, Demo plays one more game in the NBA before it's all said and done. Like at the very least, I, I think it's reasonable. Yeah. He, he looked. He, he played at Toyota Center in the preseason with the uh, Shanghai Sharks, and he looked. You know, I think he had like 30 something points. He looked in good condition. I don't think he's as athletic as he was at his prime, but yeah, he still looks like he can play in the NBA. I think he does. And we heard rumors in training camp the Rockets were considering Terrence Jones, so I wouldn't be surprised if he gets another cup of coffee somewhere as well. So I think they'll probably get another look, but will they be consistent rotation players? I don't think so. We'll see. I mean, Demo's like a double-double machine in China. Like, I'm looking at these yep. stats right now. I mean, it's it's just – you, you wouldn't think it, but that guy's having some success there in China. Um, but, yeah, um, going back to this to this game, so you, you, you mentioned overtime, and you covered that pretty adequately, the free throw stuff and, like – Harden uh, making the free throw, intentionally missing the second free throw. Game over. Uh, time runs out. Rockets win. Um, now the social media shenanigans. I really want. <laughs> I, I really want to talk about this. So yeah, at the time, as you mentioned, Chad Shanks was running the Rockets uh, social at this point, and I, I I do believe the Rockets at that point were at the forefront of social media. Like they were just yes, they were very creative. Yeah, yeah. Th- this was like way before Wendy's was out there tweeting really, really funny yep. and quirky stuff. Like the, the Rockets and the, the Hawks at the t- at the time, I remember, were one of the two teams in the NBA that were really pushing the boundaries of what it means to be a social media uh, team. And th- they were just p- constantly tweeting out creative and funny things um, on Twitter. And after the game, as you mentioned, they tweet out the King James uh, yeah. tweet, which you could tell was in the bag. Like they, that, that was so, that was something they planned before the game and had had planned to release a release afterwards. That had things gone well for the Rockets, and obviously social media runs away with it. And then the the, the tweet with LeBron in front of the mirror. Oh my god! Like so, what was funny at the time was people were really getting into editing at this point in Twitter history. Right, like people yep. were starting to edit images and really make funny memes out of it, and. Uh, I think I remember someone had edited like a watermark of Harden in the background of that mirror, and he was just staring back yep. at LeBron, yep. and 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 it Amazing. was just it was just beyond funny. It was pure comedy. Like this is Twitter. This is Twitter when Twitter was fun before Twitter yes, was one hundred percent and a and a dark place. This was Twitter at its best. Yeah, this was Twitter at its best before. I mean, of course, there's other subjects besides sports that play into it these days. But, uh, you know, at, at the time, people were more lighthearted. And, you know, LeBron took it seriously, but you didn't have the environment that we have today where everything becomes so serious 
so quickly and people seem unable to take jokes. Back then, people took it more in stride. And yeah, I'm not sure if it was Chad or, as I mentioned, Jose Lopez was the guy who actually put the graphic together. I'm not sure who actually came up with the King James idea. Uh, Jose is still with uh, the team, by the way. But um, yeah, this was social media at its best. And so, yeah, the LeBron said mirror selfie, the edits of that with Harden in the mirror laughing at him. I mean, that was just perfect. It contributed to this being an iconic game. And I wish we could do that now. The one thing I'll say from the Rockets perspective, they've been getting edgier. They're not nearly to the level they were then, but what happened, there was about a year or two where the Rockets from a social media standpoint were so bland because we know what happened in the 2015 playoffs when Chad lost his job over that emoji horse and gun. And then after that, between, I think, you know, the backlash that that got, fair or not, I thought it largely was not fair, but between the backlash to that, the fear the guy lost his job over it, could this happen to me? And then, of course, the ensuing season, they went 41 and 41. It's a lot more difficult to talk smack if your team is kind of a laughing stock, which the Rockets with championship expectations going 41 and 41 at the time were. All of that kind of created this environment where for the next couple of years, the Rockets were just in a shell on social media and just sort of boring. And I understand it. Now, the last couple of years, they finally started progressing back. Not going to yeah, send back to what, what they're they were, but they're, yeah. yeah, but they're getting better. They have more of a personality, and I hope that continues because I agree. From a social media standpoint, 2015 was the best. 2020 is not there, and some of it, as you mentioned, some of it is out of their control because Twitter overall is just not nearly as fun now as it used to be for a lot of reasons. But uh, I do think it would be better if the Rockets account was I think the Rockets account was better in 2015 than it was in 2016. Let's just put it that way. Oh yeah, that's without a doubt. But um, it, those guys are putting in a lot of work and they're trying hard. They're being really creative and they're. Uh, I I do think I do think they're going to be back on the forefront once again. Uh, by the way, did, did, this is way off topic, but do you think TikTok makes like an a, like an a four way into the NBA much like Vine was back in 2015? Like I've, I've been th- I've been wondering about it for the past couple months because. Right now, TikTok is 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 as high it's ever been. There, it's like a hundred million people are consistently using it on a daily basis, and I'm wondering if we start to see basketball highlights, basketball memes, stuff like that on TikTok, like we do with Vine. Yeah, I could see maybe it drives the conversation, especially if people get turned away from Twitter, which it seems like increasingly is happening. I could see it being an alternative. I would naturally be a little bit skeptical just because of the fact that I don't know what the environment's going to be like when the NBA starts up because there's going to be so few content creators there. I don't even know if the team's social media accounts, if they'll have their people there, if they'll be basically tweeting from home because each team is going to have like 35 people there. So there's not going to be very many, if any, media. I don't even know if the teams are going to have their social media accounts there. So if you don't have people live on the ground i'm not sure you you know the content i'm just not sure where it comes from from the nba but in terms of highlights and you know just entertainment driving discussions people that can edit things that they see on tv yeah i I could see it especially because and you know this maybe this is the year that it happens because with it being a presidential election year there's going to be warmer people that kind of get turned off from twitter Maybe that's the thing that drives something else. I would just say it's going to be more difficult just because you're going to have so few people on the ground that it's going to be much more difficult to get the types of uh, viral content that we're used to getting from NBA games. Yeah, for sure. But this is what I'll say. Like, I trust content creators to get really, really creative during this time period. I think so. I just don't know what it'll look like. 
Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But but here's the thing: like you and I have both made really good content about about basketball before we were at games. I I, I trust sure. I trust that all these guys that are going to be at home covering these games will come up with some really really compelling content. And I I, I do think we're going to be thoroughly entertained on Twitter or uh, Instagram or wherever. We're going to have content to work with. I'm I'm sure of it. I'm I'm sure we'll find stuff. And even if we can't, uh, the games are back, so at least we'll have that. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And you know, the other positive about it is that if there are no fans, and well, it's not if there aren't going to be fans, then we'll have more access to the players than ever before in terms of hearing what they say. So there's probably a ton of content that can come from that too. Yeah, for sure. Um, listen, this was really, really fun. Uh, we, I, I'm surprised we squeezed like an hour out of this game, but at the same time, this is a really, really good game. Um, Ben, where can we follow you on Twitter and social media and where can you find all your work? Yep. Uh, Ben Dubose on Twitter, just first and last name. Uh, the Rockets wire is the Twitter account for, uh, the Rockets wire blog. That's a part of the USA Today sports network. That's where I write. And if you want to check that out, you can go to the website, rocketswire.usatoday.com. Thank you so much for coming on, Ben. Stay safe. You too, Salman. Thank you for having me.